0: Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the Reimagine Mobility podcast series. I'm here with Ruben Sarkar from ACM. Thanks Ruben for joining me today here and uh, maybe we'll get started right away. Explain to our people what is the American Center for Mobility. What do you guys do and what do you dare? And then let's jump right into it. How you with what you guys are doing and what you specifically are doing help Reimagine Mobility. Great. Yeah. Thanks, uh,
1: Stefan. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, but a lot of these things are top of mind because we have uh, the auto show going on. And so we've been having lots of conversations. So the, the American Center for Mobility is a global development center focused on safe, sustainable, and secure mobility. Um, originally, it was conceived of as a connected and automated vehicle test track, a proving ground uh, with uh, shared infrastructure and assets for companies to come in and use. Uh, but... Uh, Getting aligned with the themes, we have been you know, shifting our focus and are now broadly looking at mobility in the areas of safe and sustainable uh, and secure, bringing in electrification areas like cybersecurity into our focus. So what we do is provide uh, the facilities and the infrastructure so that companies don't need to go replicate that themselves uh, and can spend their dollars on their product development rather than on infrastructure development.
0: Okay, very good. So let's jump right into it. Automated vehicle, connected vehicle. I mean, years ago we coined the phrase somewhat case, right? Connected, automated, shared, uh, electric. I think some of those pieces are way more developed than others since we've used that phrase. But tell me a little bit. It seems it seems today there's so many different activities, and everybody likes to throw out connected. Everybody throw, likes to throw out automated. What do you guys see from the testing and exactly what, what you just shared with the listeners and the viewers and what you guys are contributing here to, to the mobility space and, and helping suppliers and OEMs alike uh, to do it? Where do you really see the connected and automated space heading right now? And then maybe where do you see it really be in, in maybe five years? Yeah, so I, I you know, like many people,
1: uh, people were talking about connected, automated, shared electric or even just connected and automated vehicles, cabs. And the reality is you have connected vehicles and that you have automated vehicles and then you have connected and automated. And really what's happening right now is th- these are happening in individual kind of kind of um, categories. So uh, a number of the automated vehicle developers said, hey, we'll take connectivity when we get it, but we're just moving forward on automation, right? because they 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 realized that the connected vehicle piece took a little bit of more time to get the infrastructure up. And, and only now we're starting to see that connectivity is, is coming back with the passing of the FCC rulings and now some direction in terms of, of what kinds of approaches are going to be used. So so what we're seeing right now are, are, are you know increasing work in the in the connectivity space that's coming back with 5G and the potential ability now to deploy into the, to the 5.9 gigahertz spectrum, and then automated vehicle work. But what we still aren't really seeing is an orchestration of connectivity integrated with with automation. And so I think for near term, what you're gonna see are these two things moving in parallel with connectivity, providing more driver feedback, and that automation is gonna continue to move on its own course. And that eventually these two things are gonna get integrated. If you want the holy grail of cooperative driving automation, where you have less traffic, no congestion, no accidents, that's still a long ways away. And to be candid, it's really an area of of research that we do a lot of federal research there. But I think really what you're going to see are just individual efforts happening in connectivity and automation. And then in some areas, people trying to see how they can integrate uh, integrate the two um, together. Um, the way we work with companies and what we're seeing is, you know, as I mentioned, we provide the test facilities for companies to come test and validate. And so by virtue of seeing what kinds of things people are doing, we get a sense of the maturity uh, because you don't deploy till you validate. And if we we get a sense of what you're validating, we kind of know what the maturity levels are. So on the automation side, there's been a shift back to a lot more level two and two plus or what people call two. As much automation as possible while still keeping the driver, you know, squarely in control uh, of the vehicle. Uh, Some companies are putting out what they call level three systems. Uh, There's a, a question as to whether that you can really do that effectively but those would all have driver monitoring systems, right so you're you're still responsible to be re-engaging with the car and that getting to level four it's really going to be in the the Robo taxi space as opposed to the personal car ownership space for quite some time there it's it's more of a step function or leap to get from level two to level four in terms of the cost of compute uh, and the the sensors uh, to do it. so a lot of companies are treating these as, as separate efforts right you have your level two teams. Maybe there's some shared similarities in the sensor suite, uh, but you're not going to really see passenger car level four uh, across the board anytime soon. You'll start to see level four-like features, right, in areas where, you know, you can uh, have no cross traffic in a very specifically defined operating, you know, domain. Uh, The connectivity side, again, we're starting to see the ball rolling now that the FCC has at least, you know, stayed the course with their CV to X decision. We can argue whether that was the right thing to do or not. Many people are still a, a bit uh, turned off by the the loss of effort that was put into dedicated short range communication. Yeah, but there is opportunity space now. and There's kind of two things we're seeing. One is um, whether or not you can use the cellular network itself, 5G, which is technically not CV to X in, in the definition of how people think about it. But can you do that with less infrastructure uh, can you do that with 5G networks and get something going for certain kinds of use cases? I gave a talk yesterday at the auto show on vulnerable road users, and we gave some examples of where people can use 5G multi-access edge compute to demonstrate that you can avoid pedestrian accidents with cars in certain kinds of scenarios. Uh, and then now that the FCC is allowing deployment into the spectrum of 5.9 gigahertz spectrum, you're going to start to see a little more demonstrations with traditional X device-to-device connections, roadside units, onboard units, and, and what can be done for more, you know, low latency requirement uh, scenarios. So we provide the infrastructure to test all of that is what we do.
0: Yeah, very good. I think great great overview and completely agree with, with many points you've made, specifically the DSRC. I mean, I've been involved with DSRC myself since uh, probably 15 plus years ago, working on some you know, before it was in a in a trunk, then we shrunk it down to somewhat of a of a computer, right? To to be able to communicate. At that point, it was vehicle to infrastructure, so vehicle to traffic lights, so signal phase and timing type of thing, So we've come a long way with all that stuff. I think a perfect segue. We we're seeing all these technologies, and you guys are seeing it on the test track, right? So after it's Developed to some level that they now need to do some field testing or at least controlled field testing on a test track uh, like yours is a perfect fit. What do you see though? Are some of these technologies going to be right away differentiators, so help companies be more competitive in the market and, and differentiate their products on a on a large scale, on a on a on a small scale, maybe only on the high end vehicle, or is it more of showing for OEMs to the world that, hey, we're technology leaders, and even though maybe not every vehicle has it, but, hey, our flagship vehicle can do level 3 ADAS driving or, as you said, level 2++, plus plus, how many pluses we can add, who knows here. What do you see when it comes to competitiveness? Again, is, is it more technology leadership as a company or really making these technologies that you've talked about into the vehicle to really differentiate that particular vehicle or a certain line of vehicles? Yeah, it's a good question. I think on one hand, it's
1: price of entry, right? You have to keep working at it, N- not even necessarily because the market's demanding more automation per se, but it's a talent issue, right? And if you don't keep plugging away at at automation and AI and others, the talent goes elsewhere. And in my opinion, you become reliant on somebody else when th- those become more prevalent. So that's one piece. But the other piece is that, um, you know, uh, it is important to have a, a- increasing, you know, people have a focus on safety, right? And they're they're in, in the need to apply the technologies appropriately. Things like automated emergency braking are becoming standard in vehicles, forward collision or uh, warnings are coming standard in vehicles. So if you don't work on it, you're not gonna be ready for when things start to become standardized. And I think they are features that people do, certain certain class of of vehicle buyers do appreciate. I know I personally look for cars that have blind spot warning detection and more advanced features. I think where, where the line gets drawn a little bit is in what's really market driven. So if you talk to consumers, I think that they're looking for assistance in their driving, but many of them are not necessarily yet looking to give up control of the vehicle. And so in some cases, there needs to be a little bit of level setting is the market really driving towards the desire to have level four and level three? There are certainly some drivers who probably want that feature. But is the mass market really driving toward? So I think that it can be a differentiator. Well, like I said, it's price of entry on just just having your own suite of options available and not losing talent. I do think it differentiates among amongst a certain number of drivers. But I, I seem like the line is shifting back to drivers wanting assistance, but not necessarily giving up control. And so the degree to which you can do that, I think, is a differentiator. Um, and you are seeing it in, you know, these are premium options, right? So in some cases, you got to pay for the package. So I don't know that everybody will, you know, be making the upgrades.
0: Uh-huh. Do you see it also maybe, Ruben, is it a problem of consumer or market education as well? I mean, we've seen, you know, years ago, I think it was, it was Honda that did a great job of, of bringing fuel cell technology, I think, to a, to a conference like CES to kind of push it out. Hey, hydrogen and fuel cell systems, they're fine. It's not what you're reading that this thing's going to cause all sorts of injuries or is super dangerous in any sort of collision or whatever it might be. That I know for many years we've seen companies now pushing obviously electrification and in areas where it's not necessarily adopted as easily, so from what from your perspective, pushed or pulled from the market, we're educa- educating consumers. Hey, you know the the your driving and distance concerns really shouldn't be a concern. Charging, yes, we're getting there. Is is the same thing true with let's say level two and, and up? Do you see that? I think education matters. So I think uh, certainly
1: you're you're correct in that. Um, getting to know how the features can enable people, demystifying it really can help. I haven't seen a lot. When I bought my last car, I was ushered through the process in 30 minutes and didn't really get to know the full feature sets. We've often thought about um, trying to do consumer focus groups and demonstration days at our facility to get in work with the dealerships. I think Focus has been so focused on the technology development from an engineering viewpoint that they haven't spent as much time on the consumer education or the benefits of the features. And that consumers sometimes just see the negative press about the, how automation and other things are not ready, right? So then they kind of lean back a little bit. But to your point, I think that these are valuable technologies. I think there is a significant um, enabler if people are educated around how they're get, they, they can, you know, enable the driving experience, and that that more needs to be done there. It just seems to me that they haven't been doing as much there. So that's I think a key enabler. Same thing on the electrification side. It's it's demystifying things. And showing people how these are enablers and are not necessarily going to detract from their experience, they can still get the the right driving experience. So, But, yeah, I I haven't seen. I would love to see a lot more um, focus groups, consumer dealership days, consumers getting out into cars and being able to experience
0: things firsthand. and, And then be educated as to how they work. Yeah, Yeah, I completely agree with you. When we bought our last car, it was the same thing to tell you about the standard features that's been there for now five maybe 10 years and everything else it seems like they're unsure and maybe some of us more technique type people know more about what a what an ADAS feature in there does than than the dealer does so this education definitely is is also from the dealership so from the from the those who sell to us right from the seller side maybe an issue well let's go a slightly different uh, topic maybe for a moment how do you at ACM figure out what investments you need to make as it relates to features and functions that I as a as an OEM or as a supplier can ultimately then use your facility for to test? Right. I mean, we've talked about DSRC, we talked about uh, V2V through cellular uh, V2X uh, uh, means. Those are just two. What about charging? What about inductive charging? What about hydrogen? I mean, these are just some of the things that we now know are to one degree or another going to happen sooner rather than later, maybe. But how do you guys see what, what customers need next? Is it purely the customer comes and tells you and then you make that investment? Or do you look at magazines? Do you talk at trade shows and listening to those guys? Interested how you get that information on where to take your organization or your test track?
1: Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's challenging because... People often don't tell you what their needs are, right? Even if you ask, they don't want to tell you. Partially because in having a need, you might have a gap, and a gap is a com- sometimes a competitive issue, right? You don't want people to know what your gaps are. And uh, so we do a lot of detective work to try to, from all the angles you just mentioned, to try to get an understanding of the market, what the needs should be. I, you know, I've worked in, in a lot of development, on the development side too, in OEMs and startup companies. So I kind of know from the inside like what it takes to develop something. But we, what we, what I normally do is we, we kind of study the market, study our customer needs. We have an industry advisory board, right, that is comprised of a number of OEMs and tier ones that have helped found and use our facility. And it, it, we have quarterly meetings where we garner their interest. And we have private calls with them, too, where they can say things that they may not say in front of a group. And then, But usually what we end up doing is coming up with a hypothesis. We think you would like to have this, right? And then we try to test that hypothesis to see whether it sticks a lot. And, 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 you know, sometimes you have to trial it a few different ways to find out what what services are. We've done it wrong. We've, we sometimes have a vision-forward view of what we think everybody wants. You develop a service offering, and then you find out that it's not what, what, what people need. So it's a little bit of testing the hypothesis, and then we do run it by our industry advisory board. So when we went and did a, um, a re-envisioning to go from connected and automated only to safe, sustainable, and secure, we, we put that strategic plan in front of our advisory board and in front of other stakeholders and said, listen, you know, these are the kinds of things we can do. What would the what would be value added for you, um, for us to have as a service? And then we kind of used that to tune the menu slowly. But we did settle in on safe, sustainable, and secure are the big themes that people need. And then within that, we have to figure out what's the value add that we can bring that they can't do on their own. And it's a work in process. We will start to slowly roll out new services. So if We're moving into electric vehicle charging as an example, right? We were able to do that because we have infrastructure that's high-power infrastructure that we know is hard to find, and that uh, we also have an ecosystem of companies that we can put all the chargers in one place, and they find it valuable to come to a one-stop shop place. So it's an example of where we are starting to, and I can elaborate on it if if you'd like, but we're literally moving into our first phase of EV charging test beds, focusing on very specific areas that we know whole industry can agree upon that they would like to have one place to go to go do that work. So it's a combination of art and science, uh, to be honest with you, in terms of how do you figure out what people's needs are and then create that market driven offering that people are going to come in and, you know, um, utilize the facility for.
0: For us, for us at AVL, it's, you know, the, the interaction with the regulatory bodies across the world, right, which is a challenge by itself because we're not like automotive or mobility follows the same regulations on a global basis, makes it great for us because there's a lot of different variation and different developments and different needs, obviously. Uh, when it comes to testing, it makes it complicated for an OEM. It makes it good for the supply base, for you, for me, for others. Also, when it comes to emissions, obviously very critical, to you know, what the regulations are, etc. How much is government regulations impacting what you're doing but outside of the U.S.? So let's look at European regulations, Asian regulations. Is this something that you bring in and consider as well? Or is it really more U.S. regulations because people come to you to test either for, for the transplants to bring vehicles here and have them work and and be allowed in the US or or is it truly no, I'm also looking at what is China doing, what is Japan doing, what is Korea doing, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Historically we have been focused on the US market because people test locally what they're building. So they don't ship cars necessarily from Europe over here. They might find another facility globally that's regionally distinct. But there is an increasing interest, for example, like in UNECE requirements on cybersecurity in Europe, they're going to impact the supply chain here in the U.S., right? And so that's why we're starting to look at areas like cybersecurity and where can we bring in professional partners and, and to help aid companies down the tiered, you know, not just OEMs, but tier ones and tier twos, because they're going to, you're not going to have a different vehicle for that purpose in Europe, right? So you have to have the understanding here. So the global environment is starting to have an impact here. And then we also have companies that want to you know, how much of the Euro NCAP requirements can you test here in the U.S. on a vehicle that's going to be homologated and you know sent over elsewhere, or vice versa, vehicles in Europe coming here. So I think it's starting to come up more and more, uh, the degree to which you can run the U.S.-based um, standards and certifications, uh, as well as the European ones. But in some cases, we don't have the full suite to, to be a certification facility. So we talk about being certification ready, doing as much as you can do at a track, and then you go to that certification facility uh, to do it. But the cyber side definitely, I think, is starting to drive, um, you know, one regulation
0: and one region is driving it to everybody else. Yeah, you know? yeah, I would agree. Cybersecurity security is a great example for that. So let's talk about maybe Europe and what you mentioned, either type approval or certification or whatever approval might be but by a non-government body, but by a regulatory body. It could be a TUV, it could be whatever we might be in, uh, in different regions of the world. How much of what we're seeing in Europe already happening with with NCAP, with with cyber, and with some other uh, regulations that require an OEM to have a certain certification or type approval in order to sell vehicles, how much of that do you see starting in the U.S. or happening actually in the U.S.?
1: So I'll admit I'm not fully an expert on this. I'm actually getting myself immersed in it right now trying to get up to speed on this, but that's why I said that we, we feel that there is um, some um, crossover effects of what's happening in Europe driving down to the, 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 the companies here. And like I said, I don't have the expertise, but where we think we're focused is trying to go to tier ones and tier twos that need to be compliant to OEMs for various requirements who maybe aren't as well developed as the OEMs. I think if we went to the OEMs there, they, they try to do many things in-house or they're uh, they're not necessarily in need. So we're trying to find the, the companies that maybe lack the expertise. And then how can we bring our partners in our ecosystem to assist them to get up to speed such that they can meet the OEM requirements
0: to be compliant with various um, type approvals you know, overseas? Okay. Okay, good one. Maybe last question, uh, Ruben, for you. What's going to be the next car you're going to buy and why? Uh, that's a really tough one because, and I was at the auto show
1: and I, I went there with a dual purpose of looking at vehicles. Uh, to buy. So, you know, I have spent my career, um, you know, working on clean transportation and sustainable transportation. And so I'd like my next daily driver um, to get it it back to uh, an EV. I took a a temporary departure when I lived in Colorado, because I was in the mountains a lot. And I I was carless before for a while. I used to drive a Chevy Bolt. So I'm really looking at either up a long range plug in hybrid, preferably with over 30 mile range, or a all electric, for me, my criteria, all-wheel drive, high ground clearance and good range for the daily driver. And then I do do a lot of off-roading with friends and I have my recreational vehicles. And so I was looking at some of the the Jeeps and you know the heart wants what it wants, but you also got to match that with the technology. They're coming out with some good options there as well. So you may, you might see me with the daily driver and then my excursion vehicle, but both of them, the themes I'm trying to figure out the right way to, to, to bring in technology. And then you mentioned it earlier on, I want to have a car that has the features that I test at my track, right? Like I want to be exposed to to all of the the automated vehicle features, the safety. I think once you have them, you do become reliant on them and then you see the benefits. So, you know, th- that's really what I'm after. I won't give you all the makes and models I looked
0: at, but there was a lot of real cool,
1: exciting cars that were out there.
0: Oh, this is great. This is great. Yeah, completely. I, I echo this, right? I, I want to, I want to drive in a vehicle that has technology in it that I'm working on or that we are working on, not I personally, but we as an organization working on. And it's always interesting when we look at new new vehicles. My wife likes you to know, look at the looks of it and, and how comfortable the seats are, and I could care less as long as it is fully with the technologies that I'm interested in. So it's good. Ruben, thank you so much for your time and thanking for uh, brainstorming with me, together with me, of what we see, you know, reimagined mobility to look like in the next few years. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Reimagined Mobility Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.